Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman. Today, I'd like to welcome to the show, Ariel McLaughlin. Ariel lives in an off-grid tiny house nestled into the western mountains of Wyoming, a little over 6,000 feet above sea level. She splits her own wood for heat, carries her water in by hand, and grows as much of her food as she can. Ariel has a fantastic blog and YouTube channel where she shares the challenges of daily life in a tiny house in an off-grid setting. In this conversation, I'll ask Ariel for more details about her daily off-grid life in her tiny house, what challenges she has faced, what she would change, and more. If you are at all interested in off-grid living, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Ariel McLaughlin. So, without further ado, here's Ariel. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So you've lived in your tiny house for just over three years now, which is longer, I would say, than most tiny house dwellers out there, just looking at the trend of the movement. So looking back, are there things that you didn't expect about tiny house living? For me personally, the tiny house aspect um, I think maybe the only thing that I didn't expect with that is how after a few years, it would really, really free me up financially. Um, for me, I had more, more surprises and challenges with the going off grid aspect than the tiny house aspect, which wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, come up if you were in a tiny house plugged into the grid somewhere. Right. And though many tiny houses kind of choose pick and choose different off-grid things like many have solar solar power for example not many are doing it completely off-grid full-time in a location that is very cold that's true when i first uh, thought i wanted to do this i looked around for anybody else doing it to see if it would work and in hindsight that was probably a bit of a silly question because obviously people have lived in cold climates and small dwellings for a lot of human history but i i was unsuccessful in finding really anybody else um doing it in a a modern version of a tiny house and writing or blogging or anything about it on the internet um and yeah, there's definitely some challenges. I moved moved in here in November, the end of November, which is in this area very much winter. And I don't recommend if you're going to go off grid, <clears throat> starting right at the beginning of a Wyoming winter. But that's what I did, and and I survived, and I'm still here, and I still enjoy it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Could you take us through maybe a day in the life at your tiny house in the winter? Well, my days vary a good bit, but um, this morning, for instance, I got up and let my dog out to go to the bathroom and then um, sat back down on my bed where I do a lot of work to catch up on some internet things and glanced out the window and um, saw a moose walking up to the house. So then I stopped everything else I was doing to photograph and take video of her for a little bit. She's actually still out there. Um, then, uh, yeah, so that doesn't happen every morning, but I do get a lot of wildlife here. But an average day varies quite a bit. It always involves, you know, bringing another armload of firewood in in the winter, um, making food for 
my dog and myself, um, usually some combination of snow shoveling or some caretaking for a couple um, local neighbors, often going for a hike or a snowshoe if the you know weather isn't too gray and, and blowing and windy and such. And in between that, working on uh, photography and blogs and video, and I spend a lot of time outside, you know, looking for wildlife to photograph and hanging out with friends and cooking, which is something else I love to do. So those are all kind of the average things that, that fill a day sooner or later, not everything every day. Got it. And, and what are some of the other chores that you maybe do on a weekly or monthly basis? Well, I definitely have to carry water. Um, I, in my location, there is a stream nearby, but in the winter, which is it's winter about eight months of the year here, it does freeze solid at times. So I, I do not use creek water other than for irrigating my garden in the summer. I drive over to a neighbor's well and fill up my water jugs and bring them home and fill my internal tank. So that actually works out pretty well for me because I don't have to filter or treat the water because I know it's coming from a good source. So every about every other week I have to fill up my water tank um I have a composting toilet so usually weekly I need to empty the the liquids part of that and every couple months the solids part I have to of course at some point split firewood and and collect that if I'm going to have firewood to burn since wood is my main heat source and Oh, you know, if it snows a lot, I got to climb up the hill to where my solar panels are so they get a little more sunlight and, you know, brush the snow off of them if it's snowing heavily so I get a little bit of power. And on the, you know, shortest winter days, sometimes I have to start the generator to top off the battery bank. So that's kind of the other regular chores that, that come with this lifestyle. It sounds like there is, you know, quite a bit of work to kind of maintain your your lifestyle or maintain just your home. And I'm curious, when you built your tiny house, was this something that you were doing intentionally? Like, I want to live off grid, it's going to be a lot of work, but this is what I want? Or was the living off grid and the work that came along with it more of a side effect of wanting to, to go tiny? Um, kind of the latter. I like the idea of being off grid just for the independence and self-sufficiency of it and all of that. I thought I would do it eventually, but not necessarily right away, just, you know, for expense reasons. But then I was offered this absolutely amazing spot to park my house and uh, grid power of any kind is way too many miles away from where I'm have my house parked to be any kind of an option. So that kind of forced me to, to either go totally electricity free or from the very beginning, um, go off grid. So I, I kind of did it so that I could still have some electricity and park in this really cool spot. And, and I have no regrets at all about doing that. In your cold climate, you have backups, obviously out of necessity. So you have a gas-powered generator as a backup to your solar, and then you have propane heat as a backup for your wood stove. How often do you have? How often do you have to use the backups? 
Uh, sometimes that depends what I'm doing, um, for like the generator and solar panels that depends mostly on the weather. Uh, we will at times in, you know, December and January and the days are shortest. We'll sometimes have weeks in a row where it just snows heavily all day and it's, um, there, there's almost no sunlight coming through and then I'll need to, you know, use my generator every three days or so to, to keep the batteries topped off. And then the rest of the year, including all summer, I pretty much never turn it on. Um, backup heat that mostly depends on whether I'm here or not, because I have a very tiny wood stove. Obviously it can only burn for so long before it burns out. So if I'm going to be gone, either if I, you know, want to go do some job that's all day. And fortunately for me at this point in my life, I don't have a whole lot of those. Or if I want to go on a trip or see some friends or something like that, um, depending on the outside temperature, the house will eventually cool down to a point where my, you know, thermostat controlled propane heater kicks in just to keep it at like 50 degrees. So nothing freezes up inside. So there'll be whole weeks where I don't, you know, weeks in a row where I don't use the propane heat at all. And then if I want to go somewhere, it's nice because I can do that without worrying about everything freezing solid before I get back. How long can you get from, from a burn in your stove? I get, um, if I, you know, load it full, I'll get an active burn for four or five hours. My stove is pretty small. It's about 12 inches square. And after the active burn, I've found live coals up to eight or nine hours later but um, that doesn't mean the house is cold even at that point because it is well insulated and, and it will stay warm. Typically what I do in the evenings in the winter when it's very cold is kind of load the stove continuously to keep it burning as hot as possible when it gets close to bedtime, which will sometimes get my you know interior temperature up to 80 something degrees. And then I go crawl in bed up in my loft where I've got a, a kind of a curtain that keeps the heat out since heat rises and I don't love sleeping hot. And so then I sleep up there with the cool air and a window open a crack by my head and the you know stove eventually burns out and then the house starts to cool down. But that means most mornings it's still 60 something when I wake up. That's fantastic. It's I I hear so many things that you do that that I do in my tiny house as well. The curtain in the loft to prevent the heat from getting up there, you know, trying to get it nice and warm before you go to bed so that it doesn't cool down too much overnight. And, and I love the dual fuel heat sources that you have that really it, it really is well thought out your your system. Yeah, I think you could you could certainly heat with just in a tiny house or otherwise with just wood. But if you want to ever be able to leave your place when it's really cold, having some other heat source is pretty important. Now, if you if you live somewhere where it's only really cold a couple nights in the whole year, you can probably, you know, avoid that and just plan on being home for those cold times. But if you live somewhere like me where those that's most of the year, that would really limit my ability to ever be gone for more than, you know, 10, 12 hours at a time in the winter if I didn't have a backup. Right. You become a slave to your wood stove. Pretty much. So I'm curious, one thing that I've struggled with in my house is the insides of my cabinets can get very, very cold, even though the house itself is, is pretty warm. And, and I have spray foam as well. I've adapted by leaving my kitchen cabinets open um, on a night that I know is going to be very cold. But when I was looking I actually watched your tour. I watched several tours on your YouTube channel, <laughs> preparation for the interview, and and I 
watched your routine for, for instance, for putting water into your water tanks. And I'm curious, have uh-huh. you ever had any problems with, with that interface freezing up or anything else inside of your cabinets in the cold? I haven't. They they do definitely stay cooler than the rest of the house. Um, and a lot of the cabinets have dishes and such in, so, you know, they're not going to be hurt one way or the other by the temperature. Um, my large pantry where I have food, I, I rather like that it stays cooler because most food is not best stored at 80 degrees when I get the house up to that. Um, but as far as the water cabinet, I've not had a problem. There is actually a little heat lamp in there. So if something else goes wrong and I'm worried about it being really, really cold in that corner, in addition to the fact that I could obviously leave the door open to the, the cabinet, you know, that goes to it and let some heat in, I could turn that light on and kind of warm up that little corner. So I do have that backup, but I've, I've never needed to do so. And that's just a standard light bulb that you have in there? It is basically just a, a standard light bulb, but in the semi-enclosed space, it puts out enough heat to, to make it warm in there. Clever. That's, that's a great way of doing it. Your blog and now your YouTube feed are full of so much practical and helpful knowledge. Um, I think you've done a wonderful job documenting your life in the tiny house in a way that really teaches people about off-grid living. Uh, I know how time-consuming it can be to create this type of content. So I'm curious, what has motivated you to become kind of a public tiny house figure in the sense that you're sharing your your life with, with the internet? Well, originally it just started out with what I had mentioned earlier that I was looking for info on, you know, are there any things I should, you know, back when I was helping design what I wanted for my house and such, are there things I should think about or plan or prepare for with, you know, living off grid in a tiny house in a cold spot and wasn't finding much info out there. So I had originally started the blog just thinking, well, if I'm going to learn things the hard way, I may as well document them so that somebody else, because I figured there had to be at least one or two other people that would eventually do something similar, you know, can learn from my mistakes and and have it a little easier. And I've always, I guess, to some degree, I enjoy, I don't know if I'd say I enjoy writing, because I've never attempted to like write a book or be a writer or anything like that. But I enjoy, maybe I enjoy journaling, which I've done, you know, just personally for much of my life. So it kind of just became a photo and and verbal journal of the things I did and the things I tried and so on. And then I found that a few things are easier to show or demonstrate with video versus just words and photos, which is much my preference, actually. And then I started noticing the huge difference in um, people numbers I was reaching with videos versus words and photos, because obviously I am now in the minority and many people prefer video and don't read anymore. So I have started doing more videos and a little less writing. I would probably still write more, but you know, there's only so many hours in a day. So that's kind of what motivated me was to just share the the real side and, and what was working for me. And then kind of as it went on, I've, I've seen some of the, you know, tiny house shows on TV. And while I think they're excellent for exposing a lot more people to the, the concept in general, they often are either geared toward only showing the build and not, not life in a tiny house after completion or um, 
sometimes fairly unrealistic views of life because I've certainly encountered people who think, well, if I just had a tiny house, all of life is going to be, you know, rainbows and roses and ponies and nothing bad will ever happen again. And in reality, it's just a different housing situation and life still goes on and it still has its own sets of challenges and ups and downs. And while I'm very, very happy here, and I think it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life, I wanted to give people a look at, you know, what what real daily life is. Yeah. And I think that's, there's kind of an interesting paradox with tiny houses in that so many of them are built on wheels and to be mobile, but many of us choose to move our house to a place. And then all of these routines all of these chores that we have to do, emptying the compost, filling up the water, chopping the wood, they are really grounding and they really connect you to the outdoors. And so you start off with this mobile house, which seems like it would be very temporary and very ungrounded. And you build this life that is way more grounded than than living in an apartment in a city. Yeah, I think that's true. I've always enjoyed, you know, being outdoors and hiking and backpacking and gardening and such. But the particular location where I've been able to keep my tiny house um, has given me maybe more opportunity to especially do some of the things like gardening that I enjoy, which, you know, you can't necessarily pick up a thousand square foot garden and just haul it around with you if you're moving your house all the time. But since I'm not, I get to do that here. And they're actually, those are things I enjoy enough that now I am kind of working toward long-term gearing my life to being able to do those things more permanently on my own property. Um, So yeah, buying a house on wheels has ultimately led toward me being very attached to a particular spot of dirt. I feel the same about my spot. I, I could not imagine leaving it now that we have beehives and a little garden and it just, it works so well that it's hard to imagine leaving. Yeah. And I don't, I, because I don't own the land where I'm parked right now, I know I will not be able to stay here forever, but I have purchased my own land where I I plan to move eventually and kind of keep doing the same kinds of things. Like I said, just more permanently there. And I, I like to travel as well sometimes, but the uh well i have lots of friends who do it the constantly on the road lifestyle just doesn't interest me as much personally i'm i'm a little bit more of a homebody and like uh staying put i was watching your video where you showed us how you change the oil in your gas generator and you mm-hmm. you said a little saying that i really liked which was use it up wear it out make do or do without and I wonder, how do you advise people who maybe don't have that mindset or maybe want to have that mindset but don't really know how to make it happen? What are some easy ways that people can get more savvy about reusing things, repairing things on their own? Like, where should people start? Hmm. I suppose if it's totally new to you, I'm thankful that I grew up with parents who were um, good at teaching me some of these things. But if it's totally new to you, I think maybe the biggest help, first of all, would be to separate yourself as much as possible from the 
um, things that tend to tell you you need other things that you don't have. I, for instance, don't have a TV in my house. Just I would I occasionally watch movies, but I would much rather do other things with my time in general than watch TV. So that by default means I'm not exposed to all the advertising about things I could potentially buy that one sees on TV. Um, I also don't I occasionally read the local newspaper, but I don't get the paper. I don't get magazines. Um, my mother used to call various catalogs just discontent books because you would look through them and dream about all the things you could have that you didn't currently have. Um, and I'm, I live in a remote enough area that there's just not a lot of shopping around here. And I've been actually amazed because I am separated enough from it when I drive it's about five hours to the the closest big city if you want to do you know shopping at a even a chain retailer like bed bath and beyond kind of thing and i went there a few years ago with a a specific list of things i'd been saving up for and wanted to have in my house and it amazed me that i walked out of that store feeling like i couldn't live without some items that i didn't know existed before i walked in the door and, and while you can certainly um, be introduced to new things that are actually helpful to your daily life, and that has happened to me some, there's just a lot of um, pressure to want things you don't have. And if I was living just fine yesterday and didn't know that thing existed and didn't have it, I'm probably okay today and tomorrow as well. Um so I think one of the biggest things is to just be aware of and, and maybe do some things to reduce the amount of pressure to collect stuff um, that that is pretty prevalent in modern American culture anyway. And then, I don't know, if, uh, I usually figure if I, if I need something, if it's not a real emergency, like uh, it's you know, it's not like life or death, but if my vehicle breaks down, fixing that is is somewhat urgent. I only have one vehicle. If I want to be able to go anywhere, it needs to run. Um, but everything else, if something isn't operating and isn't something that I have to have to continue functioning on daily life, I kind of put a, a replacement for it on my wish list and think about it and eventually prioritize that list and, and slowly acquire those things. But I rarely go out and buy things, you know, today or tomorrow, just because it occurred to me right now. I don't know if that makes any sense. Totally. Yeah. I like that advice of rather than exposing yourself to all this marketing and all the messaging that, that tells us that we have to have something just avoid it completely because it is like scientifically created to to get into your brain and make you feel like you absolutely must have this thing. So if you if you avoid it altogether, you'll never feel like you absolutely must have this thing and you'll just go on living your life like you were before, perfectly fine. And to some degree having a small space helps with that because if I see some new gadget or something and think oh that looks really cool if i'm going to buy it and bring it home here i've got to figure out where i'm going to put it because pretty rapidly if i just keep acquiring stuff it's going to be the stuff is going to be on my bed and on my couch and i'm not going to be able to sit or walk or move so i think that does help with um kind of forcing people to be a little more mindful with their acquisition of stuff because in a bigger house, you can kind of just keep bringing things home and eventually they get stuck somewhere out of the way. But there's 
not many out of the way places if you have a very small space. And so pretty rapidly, those things, rather than being fun or new or exciting, just become really obnoxious and annoying if they're not something you really use and value making space for. What is one thing or more than one thing, if you want, that you would change about your tiny house if you could do it over again? Well, the first thing I would have said would be to have a wood stove from the beginning. And obviously I have a wood stove now, but I didn't for my first winter here. So for, and again, people have different climates and different situations, but for where I live, um, I, I wish I had had that from the start, but I've already changed that one. Um, about the house itself, maybe the first thing I would change is not have the little um, like corner porch built in. Just have that be all interior space. I could pretty easily, especially since I don't move regularly, you know, have some kind of folding little porch roof or something on the side of the house to have a place to step out of the rain to open the door kind of thing and have that um, corner space inside. Now, if I was one of the tiny houses that was on the road all the time, that that may benefit me a lot more. But being parked in pretty much one spot all the time, um, it just kind of, you know, takes up space that I would otherwise use to have a little bigger mudroom area or a larger couch or something like that. So your tiny house, is it the tumbleweed fencil? <clears throat> it's actually the tumbleweed um, Cypress Overlook 24 foot. I think at least two of those, they don't, they don't offer 24 foots or Cypress or, or I'm sorry, Overlook layouts anymore. But even for the original um, layout, I had some modifications for things I wanted, like change the loft around a bit, build a wall on it that, that mostly, um, you know, made it private from the downstairs. And I have a much bigger kitchen than, than most tiny houses. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that about the the little sitting area, because that's exactly what I did in mine. I, I kind of started off with the tumbleweed fencil, which is looks similar to the cypress as a model, and then realized, hey, you know, let's use this for, for inside space. And then I just did a shorter porch cantilevered off the the back of the trailer nice and i think that just speaks to the importance of even if you do get a set of plans there are going to be a lot of ways that you'll need to make the house your own to serve your own needs and your house absolutely looks like it was intentionally done and it, it seems to really fit your lifestyle I'm, I'm so glad you were able to get that wood stove to fit in there yeah me too and it's yeah there's definitely a lot of personalization with most tiny houses because because they are so small when you've got a small apartment usually it's made to fit your average person and their average habits because um, eventually you're probably not going to be living there or renting it anymore and someone else is going to rent it or buy it or something so you kind of need it to fit everybody and tiny houses tend to give people a lot more ability to make it work specifically for the things they do. Like half of my house is a kitchen. Now that's awesome for me because I love to cook all the time. And so I use all that, but plenty of people don't cook at home at all, sadly. And so for them, that would be a giant waste of space, you know, with a limited amount of space to start with. So there's, um, I think, I think it's cool that there's that ability to kind of customize it, your dwelling space for the things you actually care about and the things you do. 
Well, Ariel, um, I don't have any more questions, but I do like to ask all of our guests, what are three books or movies or resources that have inspired you that you'd like to share? Hmm, like specific to tiny house life or just like in my life in general? In your life in general. Well, I love to read, so picking books would be a bit difficult. Well, I guess since food and nutrition and growing food and cooking is one of my favorite hobbies or occupations, um, I'd say one of the most influential books in that realm that I've ever read was... uh, I'm very bad at titles. I'm going to forget the title, but one that Dr. Weston Price wrote on um, diet specifically in relation to tooth and bone health. And that kind of started me down a whole path of many other books and and, uh, resources and learning more about that. Um, Probably my favorite fictional book, it would be Les Mis, which I just think is probably the best fictional story anybody ever wrote. And uh, some of his, or a lot of his actually are fiction as well, but um, another author I really, really like and whose uh, thoughts and perspectives fit very well with most of the things I care about including housing and lifestyle choices and gardening and all of that would be Wendell Berry, who wrote a lot of nonfiction books on, on agriculture and such as well, but also wrote some awesome fictional books, just kind of exploring what, um, what we've lost here in this country as the culture has moved away from people being and again, this is a bit funny to say since I have a house on wheels, away from people being grounded and attached to a place and a community and taking care of it and providing for themselves and each other in that place. Awesome. I'll definitely check those out. Ariel McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, that is it for our conversation with Ariel McLaughlin. Remember, if you have questions, check out thetinyhouse.net. There you will find the Tiny House blog that has close to 100 helpful articles about all different facets of planning, building, and designing a tiny house. There you will also find my comprehensive guide, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is perfect If you want to go tiny, but you want to make sure you're making the right decisions for your lifestyle. Like Ariel stressed, it is so important to choose the right appliances. She started off with the wrong heater for her climate, and it made for a pretty unpleasant winter. And you can avoid the mistakes that other tiny housers have made in the past, and Tiny House Decisions is a great way to do it. So to learn more, go over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD. If you enjoyed today's show, please do consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts so that way you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll see you next week.